This is a Rooster Teeth production. September 26, 1997. Garuda Indonesia Flight 152, an Airbus A300 carrying 234 people, is on approach to Polonia International Airport in Medan, Indonesia, after a flight from Sokarno Hatta International Airport in Jakarta, Indonesia. Forest fires in Riau, South Sumatra, and Kalimantan have sent smoke covering the skies across all of Southeast Asia, limiting visibility to less than 500 meters. The flight crew of Garuda Indonesia Flight 152 has to rely on air traffic control and their instruments to guide them through their approach. With only one runway and another aircraft departing, air traffic control has to slow Flight 152 to clear the way for their landing. Madan Approach is attempting to guide Flight 152 by advising them based on local radar vectoring guidance. While being vectored in the smoke, the pilots realize with horror they are flying straight into treetops on a mountain. They attempt to add power and climb, but it is too late. The plane slams into the mountainside, and all 234 occupants lose their lives in what would become the deadliest aviation disaster in Indonesia's history up to this point. Why did Garuda Indonesia Flight 152 collide with terrain while talking to air traffic control? Did air traffic control make an error, or did the pilots make an error, or was there some malfunction with the plane? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi. We're here with another episode. You know, I realized something the other day, Chris. I don't think we've we've mentioned to our listeners that RTX is coming up here in Austin oh, in a couple of yeah. months. Oh, yeah. It's a, an event in Austin, and uh, we'll be doing panel and, you know, meet and greets and whatnot there. You should definitely check it out, rtxaustin.com. Besides us, there's like a whole podcast festival track there with a bunch of other podcasts, some of the other podcasts that we participate in. And a bunch of other internet content stuff, comedy, video games, you name it. Yeah, there's like live comedy shows. And, and Austin's just a fun place to visit. Yeah. If you've ever been to Austin, I just want to check it out. July 7th to 9th this summer, just about two months away at this point. Tickets are available. Again, just head to rtxaustin.com. Get more information. Pick up some tickets. Come say hi. We're doing a panel. I don't know what day the Black Box Down panel is on, but we are doing one. And a little bit of a spoiler, a little peek behind the curtain here. I I haven't told you this either, Chris. Dennis is going to be on the panel with us. Our old writer, Dennis. Dennis! As well as Marcos, our current writer for Black Box Down. So if you've ever wanted to pick their brain as well about the writing process for these episodes, they will also be joining us on uh, on the panel. That'd be great. Dennis did the craziest thing. This is a tangent. Let's let's save that for the panel at RTX. Okay, okay, okay. I was going to tell a story where it... Anyway... I think I know what you're going to say, and I think it's a, <laughs> it's a good thing to bring up at the panel at RTX uh, here in about two months. Again, rtxaustin.com. Anyway, that's later. This is now. We're talking about Garuda in Indonesia Flight 152. I don't know if we've talked about a Garuda incident in the past. I think we have, but just as a recap, Garuda Indonesia is the flag carrier for Indonesia. It's the country's second largest airline after Lion Air, and it's headquartered at Sokarno Hatta International Airport in Jakarta. Ah, oh, man. Is this bad? All I think about is, it's not Garuda Valley in Zelda, is it? Gerudo Valley. Oh, Gerudo. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 rock eating guys, right? Yeah. No, no. That's it's like the Gerudo Valley is like the kind of like deserty region where they have like it has the music that goes da 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 da. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gerudo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. I'm I'm thinking of something else. Yeah, no, no. It's similar, but not quite. That's G-E-R-U-D-O. Garuda is G-A-R-U-D-A. Yeah, yeah. And there's some listeners right now who are like, what? It's a video game thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no. It's, a, it's, it's good to, to we can spell it out, right? Got to try to uh, get it to... <laughs> Make sure to, they, don't, uh, they aren't thinking about the, the, the area in Zelda Ocarina of Time. Yeah, and, Zelda, as far as I know, only has gliders. And yes. There is no uh, powered flight. As far as I remember... It's been a little while. Anyway, Garuda Indonesia Flight 152 was captained by Hans Rachmo Wiogo, who is a 41-year-old pilot with 19 years of flying experience at Garuda and had nearly 12,000 flying hours. And the first officer was Tata Zuwaldi, who was also 41. And he was a former flight engineer who had recently transitioned to becoming a pilot. Remember, this is 1997. Oh, yeah. He was like, I'm out of a job. Right. He's like, oh, <laughs> if, if I want to stay in the cockpit of a plane, I need to move from that chair, which no longer exists, to that chair over yeah. there, which is going to continue to That's exist. That's actually interesting. I, I don't know if we talked about that, but like, yeah, I guess that was a very, I bet a lot of flight engineers did that. Probably. Yeah. I don't, I yeah. don't have any figures or numbers on that, but 
they would already be fairly familiar with the, I mean, pretty familiar with the systems. They probably needed training on how to actually do the flying aspect. But as far as the systems and everything, they would probably know all of that. Yeah. Because we've talked about before, like the handle radio calls. Whenever there was a, an engineer, if something was going wrong, they would manage a checklist and mm -hmm, you know, run over mm -hmm. the different things and look at it all. And they know like the, the theoretically how to fly the plane, probably. Right. It's probably just like the actual yeah. physical act of doing it. Anyway, the captain, Captain Wiogo, was familiar with Polonia International Airport. He'd made the you know, flight numerous times. And this plane that they were flying, an Airbus A300, it was referred to, or this specific airplane was, all, was what they called a FFCC. It stood for Forward Facing Crew Concept. It's a modified version of an Airbus A300 in which the flight engineer station is eliminated. And the relevant controls are simplified and relocated to be positioned on the overhead panel between the two pilots. So presumably this was a plane that originally had a flight engineer seat. Mm. Then they modified it to get rid of that and you know, repositioned all of the, the controls so that two pilots could operate everything. Okay, yes, makes sense. The aircraft was powered by two Pratt Whitney turbofan engines and had about just under 27,000 hours. It was 26,950 hours and 16,500 takeoff and landing cycles at the time of the accident. This flight departed from Jakarta at 441 Universal Time. And it was regular scheduled passenger flight to Polonia International Airport in Madan with an estimated arrival time of 641 Universal Time. So about a two-hour flight. Okay. At 1.13 p.m. local time, air traffic controllers in Madan cleared Flight 152 for an ILS approach to Runway 5 from its heading of 316 degrees. So ILS approach means they're going to do an instrument approach. Remember, there's heavy smoke. There's wildfires in the area or forest fires in the area that are obscuring visibility. So they can't see very far. Yeah. So they're, they're going to do this instrument approach. And Which is, I, that's like a crazy like anomaly I don't think we've talked about before. Wildfire smoke. We've talked about volcano smoke before. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it happens, you know? It's just another phenomenon you have to deal with. I mean, if you think about it, it's like clouds also obscure visibility quite a bit, you know? Yeah. So it's not necessarily any more dangerous per se. Maybe it might smell a little bad, but, uh, you know, you should be able to deal with this. And then also to clarify some of the things I was saying, they're on a 316 degree heading. So they're flying northwest. And if they're cleared for runway five, Runway 5 would be kind of in the direction of northeast. So, you know, they're flying towards northwest and they're going to have to kind of turn to the northeast to get to that heading because Runway 5 indicates that it would be at a 050 heading. If you're thinking okay. about a compass, north is 0, south is 180, east is 90, west is 270. There's only one runway at this airport and there was another flight departing at that time. And they were departing on runway 23. So it's the same runway, but they're departing to the southwest. This incoming plane is going to be landing on that same runway to the northeast. So they don't, you know, they're trying to space them apart. So air traffic control tells flight 152 to slow down a little bit, give this other plane space to take off, and then they're going to vector them in to come into land. And there's nothing, that's all pretty normal stuff. Yeah, the only potential wrinkle, the only like slightly weird thing here is that a plane's taking off in one direction, and then this plane's coming in to land in the opposite direction. Normally, you know, you use the runway in one direction. Everyone's taking off and landing, you know, in one direction. Okay. So that's, that's, a, little, that's a little strange. But I, at this airport, it happened. I did look into it a little bit, and yeah. it wasn't uncommon at this airport. It is a little strange, though. So less than 15 minutes from landing, Flight 152 descends through 10,000 feet, and they hit that really thick smoke, which limits their visuals and forces them to you know, depend on their instruments and air traffic control instructions. And the pilots were instructed to turn left to a heading of 240 degrees to intercept the ILS localizer. That's the, so their instruments come alive and work and can guide them down to the runway. If they're heading 240, they're pretty much heading exact opposite of the runway. Because remember, the runway's 050. So 190 degrees difference, or 170 degrees, depending on how you look at it, uh -huh. uh, they're pretty much flying in the opposite direction, presumably to turn around, you know, do a 180-degree turn and come back and land on the runway. A little, little bit of math, a little bit of a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so remember, they're flying on this 240 heading, and then two minutes prior to the impact, the crew was asked to turn a little further left to 215 degrees, presumably to space them out a little more. Mm -hmm. 
At 1.30 p.m., Madan instructed the crew to descend to 2,000 feet and to turn right heading 046 degrees to line up for arrival onto runway 5. Remember, this is what I said. They were flying kind of opposite the runway, and now they're being asked to make that right turn to line up and come in to land. The crew was asked to report the direction in which the plane was traveling. At this point, this is when the confusion starts. Because air traffic control became confused about what plane they were talking to because a little earlier, there had been another flight with the same number. Remember this? We're talking about Garuda Indonesia Flight 152. A little earlier, air traffic control had been talking to Merpati Nusantara Airlines Flight 152. So the air traffic controller, by mistake, instead of saying Garuda 152, he said, Merpati 152, turn left heading 240 to intercept runway 05 from the right side. So you see, he said the wrong thing. So since he didn't uh-huh. say Garuda, the pilots didn't listen. They assume, you know, he says, he's talking, about, like, talking to someone else. So, you know, the pilots are still going through their stuff. Even though it was otherwise the same? Right, because hmm. totally different call sign. Just happens to have the same flight number. So, of course, the Garuda pilots don't listen to this. They assume someone else is, you know, they're talking to someone else. And the controller doesn't get a reply. So again, he asks to get their attention. He says, Indonesia 152, how do you copy? Or how do you hear? And they're like, oh, he's talking to us. Uh-huh. You know, the pilots are like, oh, he's talking to us. So they're like, Garuda 152, we, we hear you. So then the controller has to repeat his instructions. But remember what he said earlier was, Merpati 152, turn left heading 240 to intercept runway 05 from the right side. So he repeated those instructions, except he omitted one specific part. You know, when he repeated it, he, told, he said, Garuda 152, turn left heading 240 to intercept runway 05. He didn't specifically say from the right side. Oh. Wait, from the right side of? The runway. The runway. You, this is maybe something that you might not think about or most passengers might not think about. But if you imagine a runway, right? Uh-huh. Imagine you're a plane coming to land on a runway. And most planes that do this, we've talked about this before, about traffic patterns. And you know, this specific plane was flying the opposite direction of what they were going to land. So they're flying yeah. essentially parallel to the runway in the wrong direction. Planes can either be on the left side of the runway or the right side of the runway. These are called either like left traffic patterns or right traffic patterns, if you're talking about. Like a car has a left and right lane? It's it might, like an invisible lane up in the sky. It's like when you're, when you're flying parallel to the runway on what they call the downwind, uh-huh. when you make your turn to you know, actually get on final and line up with the runway, you could either turn right or turn left, depending on what side of the runway you're on. Sometimes some airports and some runways specify you know you have to be on this side or you have to be on that side but then sometimes air traffic control will just vector you around whatever makes the most sense with other traffic in the area okay and remember since visibility was poor the pilots can't see the airport they can't see the runway so and this is also 1997 gps isn't as prevalent they don't know exactly where they are so they're kind of relying on air traffic control to tell them where they are and give them their instructions so the normal approach into this airport would have had the pilots coming in on the north side of the runway, so which meant they would have turned left to get lined up and land on the runway. But in reality, they were on the, on the south side of the runway, so they would have to turn right to line up. So it's just like this weird little thing. Like which direction you circle around? Yeah, exactly. Sorry, yeah, I misunderstood that. I thought you meant like there were like two lanes, you know, but like you're just saying wh- which direction they turn to circle. Correct. Or not to circle necessarily, but to like, it is a circle, but it's to come in to line up and land, you know, line up with the runway and land. Do a 360 to... A 180. <laughs> yes. A, a 180 to line up to land. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it can be a little confusing. After, you know, a while, it's, it kind of becomes second nature. But again, this is 1997. There's no GPS. And so they're kind of relying on air traffic control to tell him here. And when air traffic control repeats himself, he doesn't clarify that they're going to be on the south side of the field, that they're going to be, you know, so it's just like this one little bit of information that gets omitted. So the pilots assume they're approaching from the north side of the airport, which is the, the standard way. It's, it's on the charts. It's what normally you would do. But again, like I said, sometimes air traffic control can amend that if there's other traffic. And in this case, mm-hmm. there was a plane departing remember which i mentioned earlier and it was departing out to the north so air traffic control was keeping this plane incoming to the south to keep keep them spaced apart so all of that sorry i know that's like a mouthful it's a ton to get through all that is to establish that when the pilots were ultimately instructed to turn right to a heading of 046 and maintain 2000 feet to 
you know, get the localizer for the ILS on runway five, out of a force of habit, the captain, instead of turning right, as he was instructed, turned left. Mm. Because normally, again, normally you were supposed to turn left. The chart says turn left, but he was told to turn right. And then maybe because, like I said, he'd been here many times, it's just like a force of habit. He turned left instead of turning, instead of turning right. And air traffic control o- omitted that the second time? They did not omit it the second time. They, omit, they omitted it when they first told the pilots what they were going to be doing. You know, when the air traffic control finally does tell him to turn to 046, he does say turn right to 046. But the captain, just out of force of habit, turns left. Okay. The next question someone might ask is, well, why did the first officer not notice that the captain turned the wrong direction? Yeah. Well, due to, I guess, what you could call bad luck, Uh right at that moment, the captain was complaining that the, the cabin was hot. And he asked the first officer to look and check and make sure the air conditioner was on and working. So the first officer looks up to check the air conditioner. The captain begins this left turn. And the first officer's, you know, fiddling with the air conditioner and, you know, says, no, the air conditioner is working. And he, you know, when he finally looks down again at the instruments, he does tell the captain, hey, we're turning the wrong way. Oh, he does. Yeah. And the captain, you know, at this point, radios back to the controller and asks the controller, hey, which way do we need to turn? And the controller confirms. Right turn zero four six. Mm. So then now things become even more confusing. So the the plane is turning to the left. They were supposed to turn to the right. They ask the air traffic controller, "Hey, which way were we supposed to turn?" Air traffic controller says, "To the right." So the pilot says, "Okay, we'll turn right." And the air traffic controller says, "Continue left turn." And the captain says, "What? But we're turning right now. What do you mean continue left turn?" <laughs> and the air traffic controller you know, at this point, doesn't really have an entirely clear picture of what's happening. Mm. It's like a who's on first situation. Yeah. He's like, but you said turn right. It's like, was he saying, no, go ahead and continue your left turn? Is that what he was Exactly. Saying? That's what he meant to say. It's like, okay, well, you already turned left. Continue that left turn. That's how I interpreted that. Right. But the captain thinks, oh, he thinks we're still turning the wrong direction. I need to correct him. We're actually turning right now. So he turned, started turning left and then did, so he's kind of doing like an S shape. Exactly. Yeah, that it's exactly a big S shape in the sky that he's doing. And the air traffic controller doesn't have a very quickly updated picture of what's going on. Yeah, because his radar screen is only refreshing every 12 seconds. Seems slow. That's really slow. Most modern radar should refresh about every five seconds. They had an older system here. Yeah, I'm thinking about like movies. They go bloop, bloop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Which is yeah, about yeah. four or five seconds, right? Yeah. The five seconds is, is, it should be pretty standard. 12 seconds is long. Wait, it's like, bloop. Bloop. That is, that is <laughs> <laughs> that's a long. It's, it's, a, it's a long pause. And if you think about how fast a plane is going, they can cover a lot of ground. Yeah. In that amount of time. Because, you know, their, the radar was slow. And not getting this constant up-to-date view of what's going on, the controller thought the plane was continuing left, when in reality, like you said, it's making this S-turn kind of deal, and it's turning right. And it's at this point, since they initiated that turn to the left, they're getting close to mountains and high terrain. Oh, no. And while all this is going on, the flight descended below their clearance of 2,000 feet. Remember, they were told, maintain 2,000 feet and make this right turn. Well, they, instead, they turned left and dipped below 2,000 feet. Why'd they do that? This is one of the parts of the report that's unclear. After the crash, the systems where they could go through and figure this out were a little too damaged for them to figure it out. The speculation is that when the 2,000-foot limit was entered into autopilot, the captain may have mistakenly put 200 feet instead of 2,000 Oh, no. So the pilots didn't notice because they were focused on turning to the correct heading. You know, they're you know looking around, focused on this other problem, and they don't notice that the plane is dipping below 2,000 feet. How, that's such a big difference, though. Two, <laughs> 200 to 2,000? I mean... Well, the, you know, who knows? Stuff's going on. The, the captain's uncomfortable with the heat. Remember, he had complained that it was a little hot up there. The first officer wasn't double-checking everything. And we're actually going to talk about this, about why this wasn't caught a little more, a okay. little more further in, the, in, the, in this episode. But five seconds before the impact with the treetops... The first officer made a comment about the airplane's altitude. First officer, at least, is noticing stuff. Right. Uh, maybe a little too late, though. Yeah. And the flight data recorder, at this point, records an increase in pitch and engine power. Most likely, you know, the crew 
gives it more power and tries to climb, realizing that they're too low in order to correct their altitude. Mm -hmm. And shortly before the recording ended, the cockpit voice recorder registered the sound of the plane striking trees, followed by, you know, some shouts. And in spite of the immediate corrective action taken by the crew, the aircraft struck a treetop on a ridge about 1,550 feet above sea level. So remember, they were at this point, then they were about 500 feet lower than they should have been. Instead of being at 2,000, they were at 1,550. Which is a lot. That's a lot lower. That's significant, yeah. This tree impact separated about nine feet of the right-hand wingtip, which made the aircraft uncontrollable, spilled fuel until it hit the ground in an abandoned rice field at the bottom of a ravine about 600 meters from the first tree impact. The aircraft hit the ground at about 1.32 p.m. local time, and the wreckage was found about 17 miles southwest from the airport near the village of Wanabar, Subonlangit. When the investigators found the crash site, Locals had already begun carrying away parts from the wreckage, compromising the investigation. And we've talked, this happens yeah, sometimes. It happens. You know? Seems like a lot. <laughs> yeah. And they, they were actually really worried for a while because they, it took them a while to find the black boxes. I think it took them almost four weeks. It took them like 26 days. And they were worried, oh man, did someone carry it off before you know, we could get there and secure the, the site? But if, if, they eventually found it. It was, it was still there. It just had gotten a little buried in the mud. So normally, like you commented, like we both commented, they were pretty low here. You know, they were at 1,550 feet when they should have been about 2,000 feet. And normally there's around an airport, there's what they call, what's called like a minimum safe altitude, where within a certain distance of the airport, there's like an altitude you should not get below because if you go any lower, there's potential terrain. And presumably, you know, they, they dipped below that minimum safe altitude here when they uh, got below 2,000 feet and obviously were in the wrong direction. They were out over the mountains yeah. instead of by the airport. If, if, the, if they had turned the right direction and done the same S, just like, or would they have been okay? Yeah. Hmm. If they turned to the right, yeah. Because the, the airport is kind of situated a relatively safe distance from the mountains. So by turning the incorrect way, they close that distance and, you know, and their radar's updating so slowly, their traffic controller doesn't see it until they're right on top of the mountain. So due to the lack of access to the site by wheeled or tracked vehicles and the very boggy terrain, there's only a limited number of wreckage items that were recovered from the accident site. Things like instruments, avionics boxes, some pieces of the right-hand wing, and the frame-mounted cradles into which the black boxes were mounted. The digital flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder were recovered together on October 21st, 1997, untangled in the roots of a tree about 50 centimeters apart and 20 meters from the rear fuselage located in a soft and moist soil at a depth of about half a meter under the ground surface. So October 21st, yeah, almost, almost a month, like 26 days or so. Hey, everyone, want to take a moment to remind you that RTX 2023 is happening this July 7th through July 9th. RTX is our favorite time of the year where we get to interact with all the amazing people that give us the opportunity to make content. It's a celebration of all things Rooster Teeth with panels, special guests, community artists, cosplay, and more. There'll be exclusive reveals, meet and greets with Rooster Teeth talent, and special merch available only during the event. Now we're changing up how the convention feels this year. It's going to be awesome. Imagine a mini Epcot-style convention show floor with different attractions and activations for your favorite Rooster Teeth brands, all wrapped up in a summer camp theme. It's summer camp for indoor kids with Face Jam's Rat and Grackle Pub, a Red Web Escape Room, a Face Museum, Achievement Hunter Mini Golf, and even more cool stuff to do that we're saving for attendees to experience. Thanks for listening to us. Get very excited about RTX. We're looking forward to meeting all of you there. Head over to rtxaustin.com to get more information about the event and buy your badge. What if there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? Kind of creepy, right? What if I told you that's exactly what happens every time you go online? Your internet provider is allowed to store logs of every website you've ever visited, and they can legally sell this data to anyone. That's why I recommend using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers, so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. You don't have to worry about the VPN seeing and logging your data because they have a no-log policy, and we're the first major VPN provider to engineer all of their VPN servers to run in RAM. That makes it impossible for their VPN servers to store any data, including logs of any ExpressVPN customer. I use ExpressVPN. I think it's great. It's super simple to use. It's everywhere. It's on my desktop that I'm recording at right now. It's on my laptop. It's on my phone. You can just be protected everywhere. Oh, and my tablet too. The other thing is, it's just like super fast. It's great. ExpressVPN is confident in their no logs claim. They even had one of their biggest assurance firms, PricewaterhouseCoopers, audit their technology. So stop letting people keep logs of what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown right now to find out how you can get three months free 
That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown, expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. So, you know, now that's everything that happened. Now, mm-hmm. now we're going to talk about the investigation. Now you got to figure out why did this happen? You know, did it, it although it seems pretty clear already yeah, yeah. What, what's but, going on. I guess like how to prevent it. Right. Yeah. What lessons can you learn from this? Or and or maybe like who's exactly at fault. Right. And, you know, how can you train to prevent this kind of thing from happening again? So before the flight even started, the flight crew reported to Garuda Indonesia Flight Operations Office to receive flight briefings, NOTAMs, which are notice to air missions. Back then they were called notice to airmen. Weather conditions and forecast in route at destination, alternate airports and flight plans. So everything you think you would need as a pilot for your flight. And the NOTAMs, we've t- I think we've talked about NOTAMs before. They're just like alerts, things that are out of service, things that you might need to be aware of that might mm-hmm. affect your flight. And the NOTAM stated that the MDN VOR was overdue for maintenance and advised to use the facility with caution. And VORs are navigation aids. Before GPS, these are like the navigation aids that planes would use to, to get around and navigate. They're still in use. They're starting to be phased out because, you know, GPS is so much more ubiquitous at this point. Anyway, there's, the NOTAMs just said that this VOR was due for maintenance and to use it with caution. And although the Medan VOR had been calibrated with both ground and flight calibration on June 14th, 1997, and it was valid until December 14th, 1997, use of it was classified as restricted due to radial course alignment at 270 degrees radial. The way a VOR works is you tune your navigation instruments to it like it has a frequency it transmits on yeah and based on using the instruments you can tell what radial off of the vor you are which kind of gives you an idea and if you have distance measuring equipment it'll tell you how far away you are so you can tune it and be like oh we're on the 180 radial off of the medan vor which means you're directly south of it Mm -hmm. or you're like and it, it just uses all the degrees and you can picture in your head where you are based on this fixed point so you know where you are. So that's why they say it's restricted due to radial course alignment on the 270 degree radial. That's telling you there may be some alignment issues with using it if you're at the 270 degrees, if you're west of it. At the time of flight planning, the visibility from the Medan area was about a thousand meters in smoke. The dispatcher stated he had received information through company channel that the actual visibility at Medan was 400 meters in smoke, which was below the minimum required visibility for the runway 5 ILS of 800 meters. So when they were planning before they took off, the visibility was being reported as 1,000 meters because of the smoke. But in reality, when they got there, it was at about 400 meters, and the minimum visibility required was 800 meters. So there was even less visibility than was required to do this instrument landing. So it was bad. So that means no plane should have been landing on that runway? Is that Correct. They're below minimums. They should not be landing. They should have shut down the airport. Yes, or unless they have other landing systems that would allow them to land with less visibility, which I don't know. I don't think they did, but correct. They should not be authorizing people to do the runway five ILS with this visibility because it's below the minimums required. But ILS is instrument landing, right? Yes, but you still need to have a certain degree of visibility. But so, so, but what, what you say, unless they had more equipment, like what more could they have? So there's different degrees of like ILS approaches. Yeah. The most, as far as I know, the most precise one is what they would call a category three ILS approach. And that's essentially auto landing. You know, that's essentially the planes coming down to the runway. I think at that point, you need to be able to see the runway once you're like 20 feet above it or something. It's like ridiculously short. And the, and the visibility is near nothing. I don't know what the uh, visibility requirement for Cat 3 ILS is, but it's super small. I didn't know there were degrees of it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's varying degrees of, um, of ILS. So the standard ILS, like they were doing here, like we mentioned, the, you know, their minimum required visibility for it was 800 meters. You know, in the U.S., we would say it's about half a mile. And that's for this Category 1 ILS. If you're dealing with like a Category 3 ILS approach, the visual range needed is about 700 feet or 200 meters. So even at 400 meters, a Category 3 still has double what it needs uh, to be able to land with Cat 3 ILS. A big difference. <laughs> yeah, big difference. In my head, it was just one. It's either you got it or you don't. Does that make yeah. sense? And even nowadays, there's also other kinds of approaches. Now that we have GPS, there's GPS-based approaches. They call them RNAV approaches that have a whole other set of requirements and visibility 
requirements as well. But yeah, so to answer your question, yes, they should not be landing like this. At 6.12 and 51 seconds universal time, Garuda 152 requested a descent clearance to Medan Control. Medan Control cleared the flight to descend to flight level 150, which is 15,000 feet. And on passing flight level 150, Garuda 152 was informed that the aircraft was in radar contact at a distance of 43 nautical miles from the Medan VOR. The crew was then instructed to descend to 3,000 feet for a landing on runway 05 and to reduce the speed to 220 knots to allow Borak Flight 683 to take off from runway 23 at 620 and 47 seconds. Garuda 152 requested a speed of 250 knots below 10,000 feet, which was approved. Side note, I don't know if you know this, that's the speed limit. <laughs> I don't know if you know, planes have speed limits. Oh. Below 10,000 feet, you can't go faster than 250 knots. Not like... So- <laughs> Let's just imagine like plane speeding and then like getting pulled over by a police plane. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how fast you were going back? <laughs> Do you know what the speed limit here is? Yes, sir. 250 knots. <laughs> it's just because below 10,000 feet, you're more likely to encounter smaller planes that don't go as fast. Mm. So, you know, want to make sure that it's a safe speed and that people aren't just going like five or 600 knots, you know, yeah. at that low of an altitude where you might run into a Cessna that's doing. 80 or 90 knots. It's just a safety thing. At 627 and 12 seconds, Medan Approach instructed Garuda 152 to maintain altitude on heading to the Medan VOR, and Garuda 152 confirmed this nine seconds later. A little after that, about 30 seconds later, Medan Approach transmitted an instruction saying, Merpati 152, you uh, turn left heading 240, vectoring for intercept ILS runway 05 from the right side, traffic now rolling. And there was no response because, like we said, Merpati 152 was earlier. Garuda 152 doesn't think this instructions for them. Yeah. A little later, about 16 seconds later, Medan approached radios again saying, Indonesia 152, do you read? And Garuda 152 asked air traffic control to repeat. Then Medan approached, instructed Garuda 152, turn left 240-235 now, vectoring for intercept ILS runway 05. And the instructor was acknowledged by Garuda 152. Did they ever call out that they had the wrong plane name? No, I think the air traffic controller realizes he okay. said the wrong thing and then just never clarifies. Then at 628 and 52 seconds, the captain asked Medan Approach whether the aircraft was clear from the mountainous area northwest from Medan. And this was confirmed by Medan Approach and Garuda 152 was instructed to continue turning left on heading 215. This is a potential to have caught this issue. The pilot's asking if he's clear from the mountains northwest of Medan because he thinks he's north of the, of the airport. The controller should have, at this point, clarified, besides just saying, yes, you're clear from those mountains, should have said, yes, you're clear, you're on the south side of the airport. Mm. Right, like this is, just, mm. this is one of those weird things that the air traffic controller should have been like, yeah, of course he is, why is he asking that? And then clarified, you know, uh, just yeah. like dig into it a little more. At 629 and 41 seconds, Garuda 152 was instructed to descend to 2,000 feet. The crew acknowledged it. The flight data recorder indicated the aircraft was wings level, heading 225, passing through 3,000 feet on descent. Then at 6.30 and 4 seconds, they were instructed to turn right, heading 046 degrees, and to report when established on the localizer. And this is where the, the mix-up happens. This was acknowledged by Garuda 152, but misread the heading. Turn right, heading 040, Indonesia 152, check established. And then the captain literally says, turn right. He acknowledges it's supposed to be a right turn. He says, turn right. And then he turns the airplane to the left. And then pass through, two, he's at this point, passing through 2,600 feet on the descent. At 6.30 and 33 seconds, so 29 seconds after the instruction, they're turning left. The first officer reminded the captain, turn right. Two seconds later, the captain radioed Madan approach, whether the turn is to the left or to the right, onto heading 046 degrees. And then at 6.30 and 39 seconds, so six seconds after that, Medan Approach replied, turning right, sir, which was acknowledged by Garuda 152. And now the flight data recorder shows the aircraft begins to roll to wings level. At 6.30 and 51 seconds, Medan Approach asked whether Garuda 152 was making a left turn or a right turn. And the flight data recorder information indicates the aircraft was wings level and beginning to roll to the right. Their heading was about 135 degrees and increasing. At 2,035 feet of altitude on descent, Garuda responds, we're turning right now. At 6.31 and 5 seconds, Medan approached instructor Garuda 152 to continue turning left. Remember, this is where I say yeah. they, they enter that who's on first conversation. Yeah. And the flight data recorder shows the 
aircraft has passed below 2,000 feet altitude is still descending. And Gruda 152 replies, confirming turning left, we're starting to turn right now. They would have been totally fine if they'd stayed above 2,000, right? That's like... They would have probably been okay. They just hit the treetops. If they had stayed at 2,000, they would have been okay. If they'd continued turning left, they would have been okay. God, there's just so many little miscommunications. Right, even the delay, you know, in, in doing this, you know, we're now at 631 and five seconds. The initial instructions happened at 629 and 41 seconds. So a minute and a half has passed at this point. And they're still, you know, going in the wrong direction and kind of just messing things up. And during the, an interview, the controller said it was around this time he recognized that the aircraft went below the required altitude. It was at 1800 feet and descending. The flight data recorder indicates the aircraft reduced its right roll from about 24 degrees to 10 degrees and then rolled right again, approximately 25 degrees, while the heading was increasing, indicating a right turn was being maintained and the aircraft continued descending. So they're still turning right and descending. At 631 and 32 seconds, the sound of tree impact is recorded. The elevation of the initial impact with trees was at about 1,550 feet. The final impact on the bottom of a ravine, we set that out 600 meters from the first tree impact. So I think at this point, the other question people might have is, why did ground proximity warning system not go off? Oh, yeah. We've, you know, we've talked about there's a system where, you know, normally when you get close to the ground, you know, there's that kind of robotic voice. that says like terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. And the aircraft was equipped with a ground proximity warning system. And the flight data recorder shows that the system was triggered five times. What? But even though it was triggered five times, it never actually gave any alerts it never gave an audible alert it never alerted the the pilots the way it's supposed to it went off five times and never once told the pilots anything wait why though like how how that doesn't that defeat the purpose of (laughs) it really does defeat the purpose of it doesn't it yeah well it, it turns out that there was a flaw in ground proximity warning systems that prevented the warning from sounding when it was descending over certain mountainous terrain but that's when you'd want it. Right. And there was just a flaw in the system. It, it, so it didn't give, it didn't sound any alarms. How, how does that work though? In, like, how is that just, well, we have a bug to work out. Like, no, that's like. It would work fine if you're descending over normal terrain or if you're getting too low and, you know, flat. I think even if you're over certain kinds of mountainous terrain, but I believe it was the specific layout of these kinds of, of this kind of mountainous terrain that was causing it problems. Like there were lots of little peaks that they were flying over that were triggering it. And just because of a flaw in the system, it just wasn't sounding. Because planes run into mountains. <laughs> You're right. You, planes and mountains don't mix. <laughs> it just, that's like a really bad flaw. Yeah. Nowadays, we have a more advanced ground proximity warning system. I think we've talked about this in the past. It's called Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System, uh-huh. or EGPWS, that fixes these flaws. <laughs> so this doesn't happen anymore. Is it like it can't handle it when, when the, when, like when it changes that much? The reports that I saw didn't really dive too much into what the flaw was. I think it was probably a very technical thing that they didn't want to really dive into super much. Okay. But yeah, just all you have to know is that over this kind of mountainous terrain, it just wasn't sounding. All of this to say the aircraft was in controlled flight until it hit the trees at the top of the ridge. So this is what's categorized as controlled flight into terrain. And that just means the plane was fine. The plane was flying the way it should have. It was controlled, and they just flew into, into the terrain. Even though the condition of the wreckage didn't allow for complete examination of the flight control systems, the flight data recorder showed the aircraft was being maneuvered up to its initial right-hand wing impact with the tree. So from this and the distribution of the aircraft parts, we concluded that the aircraft was structurally intact up to the initial impact. Flight data recorder also showed engines were operating at the time of the impact. Therefore, loss of power was not a contributing factor. So all that, the plane was working fine. There was, no, there was no mechanical reason for this to have happened. So I'm going to go through, I'm going to li- go through a couple, some of the findings from the report here. The aircraft was structurally intact prior to initial impact with tree. And we know that's one thing we've talked about quite a bit. You know, it's when the investigators first arrive, they try to see like how big the debris field is, where is everything, like to determine whether the plane broke apart in the air or if it was in one piece when it hit the ground. So it was intact when it hit the tree and the engines were still operating normally at the time of impact. Perfectly fine plane. Polonia Airport was operated with total number of air traffic control personnel on duty below requirement. So there weren't as many air traffic controllers as there should have been. The ongoing training for controller, especially in critical situation emergency procedures, was insufficient. Air traffic controller needed better training. Yeah, sounds like it. 
opposite runway operation was common practice for takeoff and landing at Polonia Airport and presented a safety hazard for air traffic operations. Like I said, this was unusual that one plane was taking off in one direction and this plane was coming in to land on the other one. That's really unusual, but they did it at this airport. The runway was not closed for landing when visibility was only 500 meters as compared to the weather minima of 800 meters as stated in the regulation dated January 19th, 1996. That's the, that's the thing you focused on right away. Like, they should have closed it. <laughs> There's not enough visibility. They should not be landing. The dispatcher did not discuss the weather condition at destination with the flight crew. The use of same digits on flight numbers, especially for flights in the same area, presented a safety hazard for flight operations. Probably something... You don't think about it. You never thought about before this episode. Yeah. Uh, having similar flight numbers can be a safety problem. How are flight numbers determined? Why there should, why, how could they be like the same plane with the same flight number or two different planes with the same flight number at the same time? Like that just seems bad. Yeah. You know, I don't know enough about that to really give you an answer. Maybe that's something we can explore in one of our supplemental episodes at the end of this, this batch. Okay. Yeah, I'm not saying we're going to do that, but maybe we can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I, I really don't know enough about that. The approach controller's instruction for Indonesia 152 to intercept ILS was incomplete in which the phrase from the right side was not mentioned. The complete instruction was transmitted earlier, but with the call sign Merpati 152 instead of Indonesia 152. So again, from the right side, that little phrase could potentially have stopped this. The flight crew did not rigorously comply with the company's standard operating procedure for the management of altitude change. The flight crew deviated from procedures that required when the autopilot is engaged. The, okay, and this is, remember, we were asking earlier, like, why, how could they put 200 instead of 2,000? How did no one notice? Yeah. And I said, we're going to talk about it later. This is where we're talking about it. So the crew didn't do what they should have done when it came time to change altitude. The actual procedure that should be followed is when the autopilot is engaged, pilot flying is to make changes to the autopilot settings and announces flight mode enunciator. Pilot not flying confirms changes made by pilot flying and to announce mode changes on his flight mode enunciator. Pilot not flying to call when approaching assigned altitudes, like 1,000 feet to go. Mm. So they didn't follow that. Normally, one pilot changes it, says what he did, and the other pilot double checks it, looks and says, yes, you did it, and also yeah. verbalizes it. But in this case, you know, the pilot was, or the captain was making changes. He was asking the first officer to look at the air conditioner and like distracting him with other tasks instead of having this checks and balances system like the way it's supposed to be. Mm. And also, you know, the, the pilot not flying is supposed to be watching that altitude and calling out when they're getting to their assigned altitudes. It's a lot for one person to do. So that's why, you know, they want to divide these tasks and have someone double checking. The aircraft turned to the left instead of to the right by pilot flying, even though the instruction was given and was correctly read back in radio communication with the air traffic control. The pilot flying's instruction to check the cockpit air conditioning had distracted pilot not flying's attention and added the crew's workload at a crucial point in time, presumably causing the pilot not flying to not immediately identify the aircraft was turning to the left instead of to the right, as instructed by air traffic control. We've talked about before how there's nowadays there's strict rules about the pilots talking when they're you know getting ready to land. There's like uh -huh. what they call sterile cockpit where they're only allowed to talk about things related to the flight and the safety of the flight below certain altitudes, you know, presumably when coming into land and when doing their first takeoff for safety reasons. So stuff like this doesn't happen. So they're yeah. not having some other conversation or there's not something else going on. It's like, no, we're going to focus on this because this is the most dangerous time for us. And yeah, the, it being hot. Uh, uncomfortable. I get it. But yeah. You're, you're about to land, right? Yeah, if you're yeah. hot, you're three or four minutes away from landing. Just deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> I say that also as someone who flies uh, without air conditioner in Austin <laughs> <laughs> in the summer. So I'm used to dealing with, uh, with it being pretty hot. The radar return rate on the screen, which is at 12 seconds interval, is sufficient for en route, but insufficient for approach. So that's to say this slow radar is fine when you're tracking a plane that's like at cruising altitude when it's, you know, en route between destinations. But when it's on approach coming into land, it needs to update much faster. Yeah, it makes sense. Because, yeah, 12, that's so slow. Mm-hmm. The approach controller did not issue position updates to the crew when the flight track appeared to be near an obstacle and outside the localizer vectoring footprint boundary. So maybe it's because the updates were too slow or who knows, maybe the controller was distracted, but he didn't give them a warning or when the flight appeared to be 
not going in the right direction more quickly. The approach controller did not react as the transponder mode C returns on his radar screen indicated the aircraft had descended below 2,000 feet altitude. There was a lack of situational awareness of the pilot flying regarding the aircraft's position and projected flight path, which started from initial radar vector. So normally, you know, when you're coming in and you're doing these instrument approaches, you have, and we've talked about this before, you have like what they call a plate. And it's like a diagram showing the airport, shows like all the different waypoints and how you're going to come in and how you're going to land mm-hmm. and what direction you're going to turn, what heading you need to be on. And perhaps because they came in on the south side instead of the north side, like he expected, they just kind of, the pilot flying kind of just lost track of where he was in, you know, in relation to the airport. It's frustrating or not. I don't know. But just that there's so many little like, oh, this, 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 like little things. It just sounds like that in a lot of way, both everyone was a little off. Yeah. And that's, that's why I find, that's why we started this podcast. Today. It's like, <laughs> that, that's why I find this so interesting. It's like, it's never, well, it's rarely ever like, oh my God, here's the one smoking gun that caused everything. It's like, well, now first this happened, which led to this thing happening, which led to this thing, you know, and you just work your way down. It's like all of these things had to line up in the exact wrong way to cause this. There's only the one smoking. There was that one episode where there was one smoking gun. <laughs> there was. <laughs> that, that, that Good memory, Chris. <laughs> The flight crew's focused attention on horizontal position may have degraded their altitude awareness. Again, they were fixated on their heading and which direction to turn, and they stopped looking at their altitude, or they didn't notice it as fast. The aircraft did not capture 2,000-foot altitude for reasons that could not be determined. The most probable cause for the autopilot not capturing 2,000-foot altitude is incorrect altitude setting. Remember, you asked earlier, like, how did this happen? The report can't say definitively that the pilot put the wrong altitude in, but it's speculating that that's most likely what happened. The report actually goes on to say an autopilot capture malfunction is possible, but not probable. They did the odds on it and the failure rate of this happening, like the, the odds that it would fail and it would cause this to happen is about one in 2 billion. Uh, so for the sake of this podcast, let's rule that out. <laughs> yeah. But that being said, we have talked about things before where it's mm. like, astronomical odds but it happened like when the thrust reverser deployed in that one brazilian flight you're like yeah this is like a one in six billion thing but it happened you know it doesn't mean it's impossible but it means it's crazy improbable (laughs) the flight data recorder recorded the ground proximity warning system warning was on for five samples given the sampling rate the duration of this warning was between four and six seconds and there was no evidence on the cockpit voice recorder recording that ground proximity warning system oral warning was produced before the aircraft's impact with the tree for reasons that could not be determined. Again, this is just the ground proximity warning system warned, and it says it activated five times, but it was never heard in the cockpit voice recorder. So presumably it never went off. That's crazy. Yeah, awful. That's maybe one of the reasons that we now have enhanced ground proximity warning system. They also nowadays, you know, more modern, they also incorporate GPS into the ground proximity warning system so that it knows where the terrain is and where you are in relation to it. So it, you know, it, it can kind of keep track of that a lot better in real time. And we've talked about that before, about databases and how they need to be updated. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you know, yeah, it, terrain it, it, may, <laughs> even though terrain may not change, you know, there may be towers and buildings and stuff. So, you know, all this to wrap up, you know, there was confusion regarding the turning direction of left turn instead of right turn during radar vectoring that reduced the flight crew's vertical awareness while they were concentrating on the aircraft's lateral changes. You know, again, they're fixated on fixing one thing. Another thing slips away. This caused the aircraft to continue descending below the assigned altitude of 2,000 feet and hit treetops at 1,550 feet above mean sea level. That's like the quick summary of yeah. everything. You know, we've talked about this before. I got my pilot license last year, and I've been working on getting an instrument rating, which would allow me to do instrument flying like this, you know, do ILS approaches. So I'm a little familiar with these things. And in training, the instructor always tells me, like, if there's one thing that's wrong, you don't fixate on it. He's like, mm, <laughs> yeah. like hit my hands. It's like, well, if, you, yeah. if there's one thing off, you, you, you do something to begin trying to fix that and then continue scanning and make sure everything else is okay. Because he always tells me this. If you keep staring at that one thing, you're not looking at everything else. Yeah. And something else, other things are going to slip away. It's like, so begin your fix and then come back to it and see, you know, if it's fixed. And we've talked about that. Like the light, yeah. the light being out or like. And then running out of gas. <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah, you get fixated on one thing and then everything else falls apart. And it's just entirely preventable. 
but yeah, that's it. That's it. Gerudo 152. A, a really bizarre mix-up of left turn versus right turn and just losing track of where you are in space. Did they, like, who, like, who is more, like, was it, I mean, the pilot, like... So the investigation laid blame on both the air traffic controller for, or I guess, lack of training with the air traffic controller. It also laid blame with the airline and their training for pilots. There was potentially, the, the investigation digs into this a bit more. We didn't really cover this in, in our talking about it, but saying that when training pilots, the training devices or the training systems have digital navigation displays, while some of the planes they fly are flown with analog equipment, uh-huh. which are both fine for in- instrument approaches, but that the captain may have been overwhelmed due to his lack of familiarity with analog instruments, which may have put him a little behind the plane. So it does, it does split blame here on top. And I'm just saying that's not the only thing they found. That's on top of everything else we've talked about here. And of course, they also talk about the failure of the ground proximity warning system. And there were lawsuits as a result of this accident. And the lawsuits were filed against the manufacturer of the ground proximity warning system. Interesting. I get that. But also, it seems like not just them. I think that it may have been complicated because the lawsuits were filed on behalf of American passengers. And as an American, how do you file a lawsuit against a foreign airline that's flying a domestic route? Like the U.S. court Mm. doesn't have jurisdiction over that. So I think this was their roundabout right it's like oh well we can't sue them because the u.s court has no jurisdiction there so we'll sue the gpws manufacturer does that make sense yeah yeah, it does though you can't sue people who are in another country well what's the what's the u.s court jurisdiction about Hmm. a domestic flight operated by a government-owned airline in another country yeah government-owned it just gets really complicated yeah yeah so the plaintiffs you know allege that the ground proximity warning system was defectively designed, I guess, and that the manufacturer knew about this for some time and had the system worked as it was supposed to, the, air, the accident would have been avoided. Of course, it was a huge back and forth thing and it dragged on for six years and eventually the lawsuit was settled out of court. Yeah, so I guess there's a lot of blame to go around. I, I don't know, you know who I would, I can't just say this person or this entity is responsible for it. It just kind of was all over the place. Which, is, which goes to the messy, like, the craziness of this one. Yeah, they call it, like, the Swiss cheese model. Like, lining up a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese. Like, what are the <laughs> odds that there's going to be a hole that goes all the way through, right? Yeah. But yeah, that's it for Gerudo 152. Just a really frustrating one. I know we have some sometimes where we say that. This is just, like, one of those super frustrating episodes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna do a real quick list of everything I can think of, okay? What do you mean? Like, of things that went wrong? Yeah. Forest fire smoke. Shouldn't have been oh, landing. Yeah? Called the wrong sign or wrong airline, turned the wrong direction, had the wrong minimum altitude, confusion about what direction they were turning, like who's on first, the Jeep, the ground proximity warning not working, mm-hmm. an abnormal approach. Right. And slow radar. Oh, and slow radar. Right. If any one of those things had been different, maybe this could have been avoided. So many, so many things. Mm-hmm. They I all line up to cause Probably this. still missed one. <laughs> maybe all right but that's it we'll be back next week with another episode thank you everyone all right bye